1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Engadget podcast. Your regular host that does the introduction to Avenger Hard War is off on vacation, so I am taking over forever. I am Sherlyn Lowe, Reviews Editor, and joining me in the studio is...
2: Hey, I am Senior Mobile Editor Chris Velasco, and the person who will make sure that Sherlyn doesn't run the show into the ground.
1: Sure, you're going to try to cage this beast. For all of you listening, in case you get confused at some point, I refer to Chris a lot as V. That's just his nickname.
2: I've always appreciated how you and really everyone else here calls me V, even though Chris has the exact same number of syllables one. It's not about simplicity. I think you're all just trying That's, to mess
1: with me. No, it's because there's too many Chris's around. <laughs> it's a very common name. This week we're going to talk all about Google because no one is sick of that yet. And no, We definitely
2: didn't know anything going into this event. Nobody knew. All huge surprises.
1: Exactly. We are talking, of course, about Google's Made by Google hardware event that happened this week on Tuesday. V and I uh, and our co-worker Nathan Ingram, who's the deputy managing editor, were all there to cover it and we were we came away with some thoughts, uh, and we're going to discuss that, not only uh, you know, talk about the products that the company announced uh, during this episode, but we're also going to ponder what it all means. How does that all fit into the galaxy of Google? Um, <laughs> 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 I feel like using the word galaxy should be like a Samsung thing. Yeah, like, I no, have, I, f-
2: I felt very wrong in almost that moment. Dirty. It was a very visceral thing, I deep know. down in my gut, like, this doesn't feel right.
1: The Google ecosystem. Of, of products. Basically. We'll find the right
2: word. This doesn't will. feel right either.
1: We will. Google basically has been trying to get this notion of ambient computing into everyone's heads for, I think, about a year now. And, you know, at the event this week, they hammered home the point even more. Um, and what does it all mean? What does ambient computing mean? Uh, what does Google plan to do with it? And how do the products, like we said just now, fit in? Also, whether other companies are doing it.
2: So before we get into... Google's specific take on ambient computing for the benefit of people listening, and also for me, who doesn't deal with computers and just sort of broader... I'm I'm a mobile guy. That is very much my purview. What, What are the broad strokes of ambient computing? First of all,
1: Mobile, mobile doesn't exclude computers, but okay, all right. right. You need I these know. like little smartphone you, things or computers. You know, where I'm but going that's this. the whole idea around ambient computing: is that anything can be a computer? Your curtain could be a computer. Your t-shirt could be a computer. But what makes it a computer? It's like the fact that it has a processor, a sensor, and Google's words. Um, that i i mean that i've heard from interviewing multiple executives from the company over months now is that they want your home or your environment to be always sensing you and then adapting to you. So what that means is like when you're say at home and you've got a camera like a security camera that's like oh hey my owner's home let me turn on the heat let me you know start the bubble bath and get ready the wine.
2: Because. you basically just describe your ideal smart home.
1: That is isn't <laughs> Which enough. is fair cuz
2: it's it's not too far removed from my ideal smart home.
1: Yours would be, you know, turn on the oven, let's start some baking. Let's
2: bake, guys. Let's make this <laughs> let's make some focaccia.
1: Oh god. But that that is the that is the idea that your environment is so smart that that that's why ambient right environment ambient these are synonyms these mean similar things, and um, Google is coming at it in a variety of ways. We've seen you know we saw them launch what the Pixel Four for Excel, Pixel Book Go, the Nest Mini, the Nest Wi Fi, the Nest Wi Fi Point, and the Pixel Buds. I mean, what do you what do you think? The most important thing I think you feel as the mobile guy is probably the phones, right?
2: Well, even as the mobile guy. But let's let's take that hat off for a second. It is far and away the most important of the devices, if only because it sets it's it's a fine example of Google sort of recognizing what the pixels and what its hardware efforts have been in the past. And it's a clear step in a different direction. How so? I mean, what do you mean? Well, so think about it the the classic tenets of a pixel, clean software, good cameras, design's fine, but uh-huh. like you're you're generally going into it because you appreciate, the sort of more thoughtful approach that Google takes. And that's fine. You've been able to get that for three years now. And with some exceptions to like the little things that they throw into Android, you know what you're getting into. solely or motion sense, I guess as Google is calling it, is probably the most ambitious and weirdest step I've seen Google take in smartphones since the Pixel line became a thing. And frankly, even before that, like the Nexuses for a while sort of fell into the idea of clean software, and that was basically it. There was one or two things you could hang your hat on when it came to a Google smartphone, but that's just not the case anymore.
1: For the people who don't really know, can you explain a little bit like what Soli and Motion Sense are?
2: Yeah, so Motion Sense, more broadly, is Google's attempt to build motion sensing technology into your smartphone. So you can control your music by swiping your hand in front of the phone. You can disable alarms by reaching toward it, things like that. And there are limitations here, which we'll get into a little bit, but that's all powered by Soli, which is a super tiny, I believe it's a 60 gigahertz millimeter wave radar system that's been squeezed down onto a chip and If you've been following Google for a while, this is not something that's strictly new. This was uh, a project that came out of their uh, advanced technology and products division. And that has been, I think they first started teasing this a couple years ago. But it was never really clear what the practical applications were. And I was personally surprised that this wasn't just one of those things that fell by the wayside. Like, this didn't turn out to be the Google Wave of research and development projects. They actually figured out a way to use it, which is to squeeze it into a smartphone.
1: I would argue that, in a way, it's very similar to Google Wave, right? Because Google Wave started feeling started out feeling kind of experimental. And then those like live commentary, live edit things got just integrated into other products like Google Docs or you know, everything we've seen Google build on so far. And in the same way, Soli started out kind of as an ATAP project and then found its way into the Pixel phone. So it's kind of an integration of, you know, more wild experiments that they've been, you know, doing. And I think Google's done... Quite a lot of that. I mean, the ATAP division itself also works on the um, Jacquard mm-hmm. uh, platform, which is basically Google's way of turning your clothes smart, your backpacks smart. It uses a combination of a touch-sensitive fiber that's woven into the cuff of, like, a Levi's jacket or into the, you know, lining of a If Saint Laurent backpack. So Jacquard currently still feels like a novelty, but... Seeing as Soli has made it into the Pixel Four, I'm kind of excited for Jacquard to kind of take off and be in everywhere.
2: Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting point too, because like we have not used Soli before this week. You've had multiple experiences with a Jacquard jacket. They're just jackets right now, basically, right? Are there any? Is there anything beyond that? Jackets and backpacks. Gotcha. So even at this point, it's I find it hilarious that like the crazy radar thing that. Seemed a bit more up Google's alley, like I consider Google a hard tech company. So I would have imagined them getting this out into the field a little bit sooner. But no, it's like the weird jacket stuff, the weird like fashion collabs with like Levi's and some other brands that I've never heard of because I wear the same clothes all the time. YSL, come on. Oh, uh, yeah, that's uh, Yancey Steven Lang, my good old pal.
1: Yeah, no, ATAP is, I mean, Jacquard is an interesting platform, and it is more out there than solely is or was. Uh, I will say, though, motion sensing isn't like a completely new thing to smartphones, right? Like, you've seen it.
2: No, we've seen it most recently in the LG G8, which was their flagship smartphone from last year. And I mean, look, the the phone was flawed for a lot of reasons. And I do have to give LG credit for taking the time to build what it called the Z camera into the front of the phone. That's basically uh, a time of flight sensor that uses, I believe, infrared to sort of detect when your hand is in front of the screen and sort of does the same thing solely does in theory, right? So you can uh, swipe through tracks by moving your hand around. You can control your volume by making your hand into a claw and actually, like, physically turning it like you're turning a knob. And that way I thought LG was showing off how weird it was willing to be. And, like, weird LG is my favorite LG. It's the same like weirdo crew of people who decided, you know what, let's make the G5. Let's make something like more or less completely modular. They have these flashes where they decide that complete balls to the wall innovation for the sake of innovation is what they're after. And this kind of felt like shadows of that. The problem was the Z camera, despite the fundamentals sort of working well enough, it was just a little too finicky to ever really be useful. So we've, we've tried motion sense a bit this week. Um, Google has sort of intentionally kept what it can do limited. Because of that, you have very sort of tempered expectations walking into it. And if Google wants to build off of that, or if it eventually allows developers to build on top of that, great. You weren't going to rely on this thing all the time, but there's the potential for it to be much better. LG promised much more out of the gate and just, it just blew it. It was such a pain in the ass to use. You had to get your hand... First off, don't get me started on this claw thing. It's ridiculous, like just like being menacing at your phone all the time. Like, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm sorry for those of you listening, which is all of you. V is making this claw gesture right it's now the, at it's me, and it's it's kind of it's kind of strange. I'm not sure how comfortable I feel about this exactly. claw in my
2: face. So okay, so so you've seen how awkward it is for for me to be just like doing this in your direction. Imagine me doing this all the time because that is how I choose to use my phone, a thing that I use constantly. A, that's super awkward. B, you have to make sure your hand is in the exact right spot to do that. So even if you do want to be the person who's walking around making a claw at your phone all the time, you've got to get it within, like, the precise range in front of the camera. You have to wait for it to detect it. You have to crank up the volume or whatever gesture it is you're trying to do. And it was just infuriating solely and motion sense, it is not nearly as ambitious. I was honestly pretty disappointed to try it out at Google's event because it didn't do all that much. But the potential for this very sensitive, very impressive little sensor to do more over time that's that's the key here right like it doesn't really matter what it does now it's kind of just trying to get it out there and getting a sense of what it can do
1: one thing that i found actually really smart that google is doing that we learned at the event was that you know the way motion sense works with at least your media apps so your spotify your vlc i'm assuming um the gestures just work the same across the system so your you know developers don't have to like you know, embed a whole new API or call out to a whole new API. Basically if you're already already, you know, listing your app as a media playing app, then all the things that you do to skip forward a track or pause with um, say a Bluetooth headset, they work the same way with solely with motion sense. So for example, if a double click on or a double tap on a pair of headphones is going to skip forward, then it's you know, going to also skip forward when you swipe your hand in front of the camera. But, I mean, we haven't had too much time to test it. I don't know that, like, you know, we're going to see that much more use out of motion sense from Google in the near, near, near future. But it does seem promising, right, V? is
2: a start, right? And I think that's all we could realistically ask for. This isn't going to be a game-changing technology for a while until Google. And at this point, it sounds like it's only Google who's going to be able to develop stuff for it. As to your point about, like, media apps, yeah, like, Developers can't reach down into the code and access it, in my understanding, in any way. There might be a couple examples, like the the Pokemon Wave thing, where these companies worked specifically with Google. But it's not like you and I could go write an app to like enable like Tinder swipes or something oh, just by. Why did you waving go your...
1: there? I was thinking more like the Kindle app could like just swipe in front of the thing and flip a page. So, Google Assistant found its way into some strangely interesting products uh, that Google announced this time around. It's in the Nest Wi-Fi Point, where, which is an extender for the Nest router, uh, Nest Wi-Fi router system. Basically, you know, I wasn't expecting to have like an extender have a speaker inside, which I think actually is. Weirdly it makes sense where these are things you're gonna like stick around your home anyway. You might as well be able to talk to them and ask them to play music for you, like a like a multi-room audio system.
2: Yeah, for me it was also one of those things where it seemed just a particularly Google kind of silly, which is always kind of nice to see because sure, like let's let's throw something at the wall and see what happens. But yes, it's it's an incredibly practical choice, right? Because to your point, ideally if you're if you're trying to build out a mesh network system, you're gonna have at least two or three of these sort of repeater nodes peppered around your house, plugged into wall outlets, why not give that Google? Why not give Google a few more touch points? You get better Wi-Fi, sure, but you also get... The ability to just tap into Google whenever you need to. There is some power in that.
1: So that all really fits very well, right, into that notion of Google Assistant in everything that you own and things that you wouldn't even think about putting Google Assistant in. So I think that Google is thinking very strategically about where it's inserting itself into your life. Um, I will say though that like I had a, you know, like a private demonstration of the Nest Wi-Fi, the Nest Wi-Fi Point, and the Nest Mini. And I'm really surprised at how, you know, it all sounded really good. Google spent a lot of time tuning the audio system it's got. And the and the tuning software here is proprietary to make everything sound really good on the Nest Mini, and which also has the same internals as the Nest Wi-Fi point. But more important than that is that the Nest Mini has an onboard machine learning chip. And in a device so small, I think that's already kind of interesting in and of itself but the idea is that like assistant is going to perform a lot faster it's going to like learn your preferred requests over time so that it can be more responsive and therefore you're gonna over time rely on it more right because this thing's always listening this thing you know is the most helpful to you you're gonna just get used to like asking assistant to just tell you stuff because it's always there it's always listening and I think that that is going to be the way we Behave moving forward. I don't know. What do you think?
2: I think that I think you're right. I I do have some questions about how this sort of shakes out in the future. So, for example, the Nest Mini, and I guess the Wi-Fi as well, the, its ability to sort of internalize your most frequently used commands. I'm really curious to see what kind of performance differential there is there, because if you're buying a Nest Mini, if you're buying one of these Wi-Fi things, on some level, you've already accepted the fact that you want to talk to Google in your home. What's really potentially potent is the idea that within some period of time your experience gets better without you having to do anything without having to pay any more money the downside to this is i think and correct me if i'm wrong i feel like this i think i heard that this feature is only available in the u.s
1: i wouldn't be surprised if it was region specific because i think i don't know how gdpr would play into this if they were trying to implement it in europe but you know the idea though with a onboard or a local device or a local processor that's handling all of this is that it's not only faster because it doesn't have to go to the cloud to process your information, but that it's also a little bit more secure. Um, you know, there's your your voice requests aren't being transmitted somewhere to, you know, be processed. And hopefully that means your voice requests are staying on the device or not being stored anywhere. Which is a whole can of worms, which we're about to go into. Don't worry, guys. We remember about the (laughs) privacy of all of this. We know. We're getting there. Um, But, you know, the whole point of talking about all of these different devices, it's just that it's clear. Google is putting Assistant in everything for this whole idea of ambient computing, this whole idea of seamless convenience for you. But one more, there's one more device that I was surprised by at the event. I wasn't expecting this at all. And it's another way to kind of get access to Assistant literally everywhere you go. Were you surprised by the Pixel Buds?
2: I was... Surprise, I don't know, is the right word. I was perhaps a little disheartened, because I'm still I'm still just so disappointed in the first ones. They were the worst. You
1: were burned. They
2: were the worst. I wanted to love them so badly, like live language translation. That sounds awesome, but oh wait, just use your phone. It's better in every way possible. Oh, you pull out these little rope things, so it fits your ear better. Except it doesn't, and it gets gross really fast, and it just feels bad. Every decision Google made in the original Pixel Buds was the wrong decision. And I feel like they're kind of coming around. They've seen the error of their way. So I guess I'm glad they're back. But it's going to take a lot for them to convince me that this isn't just another huge mistake.
1: I, um, I'm i with you. I mean, I've been waiting for new Pixel Buds forever just because I just want truly wireless earbuds that fit in my ear and feel comfortable. But, you know, I, you know, there were no working units available to test out. But I did get to stick some samples in my ear. Yeah, what um, do those
2: feel like actually?
1: So I recently also checked out the Surface Earbuds, the Microsoft ones, and my best comparison is against those, right? And they, the Microsoft ones fit better. They have this way of... Um, Microsoft has come up with this way for you to kind of twist the earbud into your ear so that it kind of like locks into place, which sounds kind of dystopian and scary, but it is what it is. The Pixel Buds, on the other hand, fit well, and they have this like seal to better block out your environmental noise while having also that spatial vent to allow some of the ambient, you know, sound you want in. That's all I could tell worked. That's all I know that worked. So I can tell you that it fit nicely. I can tell you that there was this seal that seemed to drown out some of the noise at the, ke- uh, at the demo area. And I can tell you that a spatial vent is there. And that's really it, you know, from from the audience. We won't know until next year. 2020 is when they're going to arrive for $179, which is cheaper than the Surface earbuds. but $10 more than AirPods. Which is that? Do you think that's better? It's
2: really hard to say because, A, it's pretty clear that we're going to get some new AirPods very soon that are probably going to sound better than the just okay ones we have now. And B... I think philosophically, there's a big difference here, right? So the Pixel Buds, in addition to giving you assistant everywhere, it also just sort of like changes the volume depending on your ambient sound levels, which to me is huge because I've become more concerned about my hearing health lately. That seems like a huge way to make sure that I'm not blowing my eardrums out on the subway because I feel like I have to crank them up all the way all the time.
1: Or it sounds like a way to definitely blow out your eardrums every now and then if the assistant or if the software isn't smart enough, it might just be like... There was a bus that just passed by on the street and it bumps up the volume because it detected that sound. And then you're just going to be blasted with, say, volume 10 music when really all you need is volume six and it was just a passing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to assume that Google, like Google's Google's not the best at hardware all the time, but like their software is freaking first rate. I have to imagine they'd be able to work that into the equation. But to your point, I, I feel like Google is probably going to be as good, if not better than me, at deciding what volume I should be listening to stuff to, because I listen to Volume Ten all the time because I like I like loud music, like that's the way it's supposed to be listened to. And as a result, I'm always that guy in conversation who goes, "What? What did you just say? Can you say that? Excuse me."
1: Uh, that explains why you do that to me all the time. Yeah, sure. it's
2: not because I'm not listening to you.
1: Um, I mean, listen, who knows? They're going to be out next year. Google has some time to figure all of this stuff out, and maybe it can. But I guess, I guess the point then is now we've kind of looked at the entire portfolio of things that Google announced, and we, again, we're not the only ones that keep hammering home this point of ambient computing, right? Like, Google is the one that talks about it all the time. Does it give you hope for this idea of ambient computing being, you know, the way forward, or does it instill fear in you? I don't know that
2: Google's specific vision of ambient computing is what I want, but then again, I am... Maybe not Google's target market here. Like, I love phones. I love gadgets. I love toys. Like, on that level, yes, I might be more prone to adopt some of these things than quote unquote normal people would. But I'm also the kind of person who like enjoys getting up to like fiddle with a stereo. Or I, I really kind of find a joy. I really kind of find this strange joy in sort of doing things for myself. So asking something to do it for me. There, there is just like a bit of a disconnect. So for me, the ability to have Google Assistant available to listen to me at all times, the idea of having all of these devices sort of effortlessly connected to a point where the hardware itself doesn't even matter. It's really just all about having Google exist in the air around you. That's that's fine, but it's not, it doesn't feel satisfying to me. You're going to have an analog guy. I'm an analog guy, yeah, which is not a, what I would have ever expected to say.
1: Well, I guess when I ask whether it instills fear in, in you, I, I am kind of trying to get to the bigger issue here that I think most people are going to be concerned about, which is privacy, right? If Google knows, and Google already knows a ton about you, and having all these sensors built into the fabric of your life, your walls, your mirrors, or whatever, then you're giving Google even more access to you, even more data about you. And so everyone's really... well. I'm imagining everyone will be very concerned about this because there have been every major company that we know of has been hit by a massive breach. Every company that we know of that deals with voice assistance in some way, it's been reported that they have contractors listening and, um, you know, interpreting these commands that people are asking their speakers and whatnot. So it it just kind of feels to me like... A lot of these companies don't have a lot of control over the privacy, no matter how hard they try. Every company is fallible. There's very enterprising hackers and people with malintent out there. And then does that you know make you feel safe, handing over all your information? Or is it at some point you're going to have to like just be okay with the fact that none of our information is ever going to be safe ever again?
2: So there's my point of view, and then there's the point of view I think most people have, which are quite different. I feel that like I've already given so much of myself to Google and you have and Ben over here on the corner and everyone has like if you're an avid Google user with a Google account and you use Google to search for stuff Google has probably one of the most sophisticated senses of understanding of you as a person there's a very strong chance that it has inferred things about you from all of these different data touch points that you might not even be consciously aware of yourself That's, I feel like in that case A lot of the damage has already been done. Yes, that's not to say that you shouldn't try to limit your exposure to these things. But I feel like starting to care about this now, it it feels like you should have been concerned a long time ago. Like there are more controls. You can delete your Google history. And there are are ways to kind of manage your exposure to all of these things. But for me, it honestly kind of feels like the worst has already happened. We're just kind of dealing with the consequences now. But again, that's me. I think a lot of people, especially people who caught word of these uh, assistant recording review programs, which a lot of people just like never knew about, in which occasionally Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa, short clips of these recordings would be farmed out to humans for review, for accuracy, and things like that. And that's basically an industry-wide practice. Everyone has done it. Everyone has been caught doing it. The value is there for these companies to make sure that their translations and transcriptions are as valuable as possible. I think what really caught people off guard is the fact that there is a human element. And the human element is the thing that we're never going to be able to get rid of. As you pointed out earlier, every company, no matter how meticulous, no matter how diligent they are about these things, are ultimately run by people.
1: It sounds like what you're saying is that like at the end of the day, we just have to be okay with the idea that, you know what, you know stuff about us is going to always be listened to by humans in little snippets. And as long as there's no identifying information, hopefully, attached to these things, then everything seems anonymous anyway and and maybe we should try to be okay with that i will say though that google definitely made it a point to talk about you know how privacy is important right they made big privacy promises the question then is do we believe google do you believe google no of why course not? not why
2: not I don't know. I don't consider myself a paranoid person. But to live in this climate and not just sort of have a natural distrust in these companies who, in Google's case, has a 100 percent vested interest in learning as much about you as it can so it can sell ads to put in front of you. No, no. Like in the case of the Pixel with like assistant stuff and uh, face unlock data, that all supposedly stays on the device for Titan M.
1: And that's one of the promises that was made, was that all your you know, identifying information is stored locally on a Titan M chip. Another one was the ability to delete all your requests that you've been saying to Assistant. Those are the promises that were made, right?
2: But again, to me, that kind of feels like too little too late. Like, yes, a certain slice of your data will theoretically never be able to be accessed by anyone outside of you. And that's great. But this is a leaky ship. We're continuing to offer up our data in ways that we might not even be aware of I don't know. I don't know that I trust Google more than anybody else to do a good job at this.
1: I was going to say, I I inherently just... Prefer Google over the other companies, um, and I was going to be naively, you know, happy to believe that the company is at least going to try its best. But then you brought up this really important point that the way Google functions, the way Google makes money, is by knowing what my habits are and then selling ads against that. And I, I think that that changes my point of view just a little bit because compared to Apple, for example. Apple knows a lot about you. Apple's, you know, Siri knows a lot about you, but Siri isn't trying to place ads on your home screen. Siri isn't trying to, Siri doesn't run a, a giant search engine that everyone uses, that all everyone's trying to place an ad on, right? And so because of that, I just just kind of feel like my faith in Google has been slightly lessened. Um, but by no means does that, uh, you know, indicate that I'm more, you know, confident in Apple or Amazon, I think Amazon to me might be the worst because their whole business is retail and they're actually actively trying to sell you stuff all the time. So I guess our conclusion then is that like ambient computing is going to result in a lot of your data being collected even more than before. And you have to be either even more vigilant than before or be more blasé about everything than you ever have been.
2: And that's what kind of feels like the scary thing to me, right? Like those are the clearest options. Is there a middle ground? sure but it feels like such a slippery slope that once you do sort of accept these services this sort of ambient computing fabric no matter who specifically is making it into your life it does sort of start to feel like once you let that in it, it's all downhill from there
1: and what, we're, what are we signing away when we sign those terms and conditions things we agree to no we we've we've never read them we've agreed we've agreed, we've agreed. We're going right now into our Engadget picks. Basically, our co-hosts pick something that they have been finding joy from. So, V, what have you been playing with lately?
2: I So, I've been searching for the perfect, like, tiny emulation machine for the longest time. Because I grew up playing games on, like, my Sega Genesis. I wanted a Super Nintendo. but My parents wouldn't let me have one. So, it took, Aww. like... We can stick a Genesis. Like we didn't need both. Was their thinking, and I think they were right. I would have been a total monster had I just had all of them and never left my house. But I wanted to sort of relive that nostalgia in a way that didn't require me to sit still all of the time. So I found this thing, the Retro Game Three Hundred and Fifty. And I know the name sounds like one of those like Nine Thousand Nine Hundred Ninety Nine games in one, in which Eight Thousand games are Tetris. But it's actually a really clever, tiny, like mini computer. It's basically this like tiny Chinese box with controls and a screen and it runs linux and it comes preloaded with a bunch of emulators that handle sega genesis super nintendo turbo graphics all the way up to like playstation level games without too much trouble and i gotta tell you guys this this is the one this is it chief like i am <laughs> feeling this. i'm the kind of person who like when i want to play old games i do it on my phone but that lacks the sort of joy that comes with the tactility as we've discussed earlier i like physically doing things myself and something about tapping a touchscreen just doesn't feel it doesn't hit me the way that buttons do this, so
1: this sounds right up your analog little hearts alley um i know
2: i really want one of those the the crank whatever panic has that game console with a little crank on the side that's analog It's hell and i want it so bad
1: you know what you can do with it you can stick google assistant into it and then it's all ambient i'm done computing. i'm leaving
2: this room right now <laughs>
1: Well, I, I, I think I'm going to take a hard 180 from you, and my pick is TV shows, which I've been watching lately, and I, you live in the past a little bit, right? I live way in the bit. future, where I have no knowledge of anything in the past at all, or old TV shows, old films. DaVinci is always yelling at me about this, and I have recently started to watch this little show called Eureka. Have you heard of it?
2: I have. I definitely remember watching it when I was in high school or college or something. Sure, that's how old you were.
1: And for me... I mean, I was told to watch this by a friend who's like, you'll enjoy Eureka because I love shows like Fringe, Haven, anything that sci-fi put out in like 2000, Alphas, Warehouse 13. I loved Heroes. I mean, I'm a, I'm a girl who's like into her sci-fi, into her alternate realities. Eureka seems like so far a very upbeat version of Haven, a very like chirpy, positive look on how geniuses can create these beautiful ways to improve our lives, and I'm here for it. I mean, I kinda like my shows a little darker than that, so I took a a detour and watched Haunting of Hill House for a little bit and came right back to Eureka, this happy little town. So I don't know, that's where my mind's at.
2: I mean, I'm glad that you're discovering all of the shows that we loved so, so many years ago. You're so far in the future that you've never been exposed to this stuff. I get it, but I think better the first time around. You had to be there.
1: Well, that's it for today's show, everybody. If you want to get in touch with V, here's how. Hey, you can get me at Twitter
2: at Chris Velasco or just send me an email, which is literally just the letter V at Engadget.com.
1: And if you want to find me, I am just on Twitter. Don't email me. It's at Sherlyn Lowe, C-H-E-R-L-Y-N-N-L-O-W. Hey, while you're at it, check out our other podcasts. We have The Morning After with UK Bureau Chief Matt Smith. That one is also a smart speaker skill, so you just have to ask your assistant to tell you about Engadget. Music for this show is created by our managing editor, Terrence O'Brien, and the podcast is produced by the legendary Ben Elman. Thank you once again for listening, and hey, leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. Come back next week for a fresh new episode.